This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. According to DealLogic, wealth management merger and acquisition activity in 2020 was about 18% higher than the 10-year average, while the value of deals closed in 2020 was about eight times higher than the 10-year average. Recent M&A activity in asset management includes the Franklin Templeton and Lake Mason deal, as well as Morgan Stanley making a couple of big bolt-ons in the form of E-Trade and Eaton Vance. In the advisory space, we've seen LPL acquiring Waddell and Reed's wealth management business in 2020, and Satera's announcement to acquire Voya's retail brokerage in February. What's driving this consolidation and how might it affect advisors' ability to continue to provide personalized service to every client? Joining me to discuss this via a recent client webinar is Marta Norton, who's the Chief Investment Officer for the Americas at Morningstar Investment Management. There are slides that accompany some of Marta's remarks, and you can find those in the episode notes section of today's episode, or you can email us to get a copy at simple at morningstar.com. Okay, Marta, what do you think is driving this consolidation? I mean, certainly consolidation has been on the rise, and it's something that we see um, commented about in the press pretty regularly, whether it's within asset management or within the wealth management space. Um, And when it comes to the drivers of this consolidation, explanations certainly can vary. I think one that we see pretty regularly relates to talent. Um, So a Cerule study I read in 2019 that was focused on the REA space was talking about advisor migration or the lack of succession planning being a driver behind some of the consolidation. And I think that's an explanation that will always be with us to some degree when we talk about consolidation within the financial advisory space. Um, But I think there are some other pretty meaningful trends at play that can be driving consolidation today and potentially consolidation on a go-forward basis too. One is obviously fees. So as fees come down and pressure to lower fees comes down, there's scale that advisors need um, to maintain a certain level of profitability. And so I think that pressure to lower fees is going to be a major driver of consolidation on a go-forward basis, just like it has been um, in the past several years. Um, And then a a second driver of consolidation, and I think this is going to become more and more impactful, relates to technology. Um, So technology is becoming part and parcel of the entire um, financial advisor business, really from the beginning to the end. And it's becoming kind of table stakes. Um, So whether we're talking about account maintenance, account opening, um, the digital workflows that support that relates a certain measure of efficiency and scale that previously just wasn't achievable. Um, When you take a look at the portfolio management elements of the financial advisory business, whether this is kind of goal setting and RTQ, understanding your client type of thing, or whether it's understanding the portfolios and having the analytics and the tools to peer inside them, um, those are becoming driven increasingly by some really powerful technological tools. Um, Compliance, regulatory demands are, are required 
requiring their own sort of scalability from a tech perspective. And then even marketing, digital marketing is becoming the norm. So I think as, as this technology becomes table stakes for advisors, and as we see um, the technology be, you know, not not cheap, I think we're going to see um, technology continue to, to drive some consolidation in the years to come. Thanks, Marta. As usual, it sounds like many forces are at work here. And of course, not every deal goes as planned. I think observers and participants of the asset management industry would say that culture is very important, that combining two shops takes care and thought about how the two fit together and how they might be better off together. We've seen some firms act as aggregators of boutiques, you know, and they've sought to provide back office support for those smaller firms while allowing them to keep a good deal of autonomy to sort of help them thrive and keep that culture. Anyway, my point here is that these tie-ups can at times be, you know, upsetting to the, the delicate balance within a firm. And that strikes me as being potentially true with advisors too. And this is a business that's so dependent on relationships and trust and making and keeping personal connections that it seems like it might be tricky to add scale and not disturb those personal connections. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly um, it's hard not to resonate with the idea that relationships are at the heart of the financial advisory business. And I think that's why a lot of financial advisors get into the business that's appealing to them. It certainly is appealing to me, this idea that we're helping clients reach their goals. And to do that, you need you need that relationship intact. So it's, it's critical to, to leave the personal um, in place and not disrupt that with technology and consolidation. Um, we had a, a really good observation, I think, from Ryan Murphy, who is essentially the head of behavioral sciences within Morningstar Investment Management. And he teamed up with a number of colleagues within uh, Morningstar to produce a piece called The Value of Advice. And in there, he was observing how critical um, relationships and really that interpersonal element is to financial advisory business. And so that's something that we really resonate with at Morningstar. Um, but I think as we think about interpersonal and, and relationships and, and really personalization, which is the application of those relationships to the business, I think it's important that we distinguish between personalized portfolios and personalized service. Um, and so let's let's tackle personalized um, portfolios first. I think when we call this to mind, for many of us, what we come to, to, to envision is the customization that we have seen in the past, um, where financial advisors or quite frankly, institutional money managers spend enormous amounts of effort tailoring the stock selection, um, tailoring the asset allocation so that it's picture perfect for any individual client. Um, and while you know at times that may be necessary, I think broadly speaking, it's, it's, it's safe to say that those personalized touches where each portfolio is perfectly customized for each client doesn't necessarily guarantee outperformance over a benchmark or a more standard kind of model portfolio approach. Um, but what it sure does do, it kind of guarantees that it takes an enormous amount of time. And that time can be an investment that means the financial advisor isn't investing in other areas that can be really big value adds, whether that's um, personalized goal setting or financial planning or behavioral coaching. Um, take a look, we'll, we'll pull up a slide 
of Merrill Lynch, which did a really good aggregation of different studies um, by these different providers, including Morningstar, but also Vanguard and Investnet and Russell, um, looking at the value add proposition of the financial advisory relationship. So looking at everything from those very early stages of client assessment and, and portfolio creation to the later stages of rebalancing. And these studies were attempting to really quantify the value add that these different services um, can provide clients. Um, and so those are the, the basis point numbers are what you see inside those bubbles, the value add that these services are providing. Um, and every study is different. Every study has its own constraints and its own considerations. So results aren't uniform across these different um, research houses. Um, but what is uniform and what is really interesting is those that took a look at behavioral approaching found that by a wide margin, it was the largest value add to client outcomes of any of these different services. So much so that its value add dwarfed things like tax management and asset allocation, other areas that are positive and are contributing to you know, value add, but are nowhere near as high as behavioral coaching. So one, there's a few takeaways from this. Um, first is that that personalized interpersonal element is really mission critical um, to success with a financial advisor. And the second takeaway for me really relates to specialization. So the ability to partner with a investment house to create the portfolios and spend all the efforts on kind of understanding the mandates, whether it's capital preservation or capital appreciation and income and build sophisticated portfolios that allow good client outcomes over time um, can really free up the financial advisor's time to focus on that specialization of um, behavioral coaching and financial planning and tax management. So it really allows financial advisors, this kind of technology of model portfolios allows financial advisors that time that they need to, to offer the greatest value um, to their clients. I love what you said there about specialization, the idea of leaning into your strengths. And certainly when you see the time and attention paid to building and running multi-asset managed portfolios, you can see why they can serve as an all-in-one solution for a client. But what about for those clients who truly have unique situations or needs or, or even for those, let's say, unique personalities, someone who demands something unique even if they don't really need it? Sure. So, you know, certainly I, I am a strong believer, as you, as you would expect, in uh, model portfolios and um, their ability to meet most client needs. Um, but whether it's, to your point, someone who perceives his or her needs to be different from the standard, or whether it really is someone who kind of falls between those standard options, I think, again, technology is here for the win with the unified managed accounts. Um, so that's kind of the industry language around the capability to put multiple portfolios together within the same account. And this allows you to kind of bridge that, that gap between those standard options. In Morningstar Parlance, we call this our multi-strategy account, the ability to combine these different portfolios um, into one account. Now, the mechanics of this are fairly straightforward, and these tools are available within our own TAMP, and they're available on other platforms as well. Um, but just because the tool is easily accessible doesn't mean that every combination is a winning combination. And so we We've put some time into thinking about what kind of education we can provide advisors to best use this type of capability. Um, 
And really, as we've thought about this, we've drawn on our own history of creating portfolios, which has um, allowed us to think about how do you create the right mandate and how do you create a portfolio that can meet that mandate over time. So what we've come up with is really a three-step formula um, that allows us to or teaches or guides the advisor on how to create really powerful combinations of portfolios. Again, this is drawing on our own experience in creating portfolios um, for our platform. The first um, consideration or the first step for an advisor, in our view, is to have a plan, to know what you're trying to do when you create portfolios. Um, so know what objective you're trying to meet and why a standard option won't meet that objective. And what I've often found as I've spent some time thinking about this is a lot of times the reason an objective can't be met by a single portfolio is because it's multiple objectives within the same um, overall client and within the, the same overall portfolio. Um, the second step is to allocate purposefully. So as you have your objective outlined and you understand the different dynamics of that, to think about the different roles portfolios should play um, within that combination and have each portfolio playing a distinct role, not overlapping roles, which I think is very easy to do when you're working with portfolios that were created to kind of stand alone, um, but understand how they're going to combine um, together. And then finally, as you take a look at your combination and you think, is this meeting the objective? You should find that what you've created is different than what any of the, either of the, or, or any of the standalone options would have been able to provide. So either there's a different um, cost profile, or there's a different return experience or a risk level, or a different asset allocation. Um, but there is something meaningfully different with what you've created. Now, what I'm describing is fairly high level. So I thought we could walk through a few examples um, because I know what you have on your book of business is actual people with actual needs. And so we thought about what some of those common needs might be that would fall between um, the standard options. And we'll walk through each of these in turn and then talk about um, kind of portfolios that might make sense for these individuals. Um, so our first example is someone who is fairly young um, and has a long time horizon for his his and for his investments. Maybe he's thinking of saving for retirement and it's multiple decades out. Um, and he really resonates with the idea of um, owning stocks and, and having kind of ownership over the stocks um, in kind of a SMA format. Um, but he also needs diversification. He doesn't want to just um, focus in on one particular corner of the market, but wants to spread broadly across equity markets. And he doesn't have the capital to devote to multiple SMAs. So immediately, as we start to think about, okay, someone who wants to own the securities, but needs a lot of diversification, has a limited amount of capital, immediately those constraints and objectives begin to create the idea that we need something more than just a standalone portfolio to meet those different objectives. Um, our second example, um, is a woman who um, has a shorter time horizon. So she has maybe a higher level of concern about risk and market sell-off, and she's very sensitive to cost. Um, so as we think about sensitivity to cost, I think for all of us, that calls to mind 
passive investments. Um, but the upshot of passive investments, or maybe the downside of passive investments, is that they move lockstep with the market. So if broad stock markets and broad, broad bond markets sell off, this portfolio can move in step with that. And so um, potentially one way to mitigate some of the some of the risk in the portfolio is to add something um, that could be something of a risk mitigator or a diversifier. Um, so as we think about low cost and we think about diversification, risk mitigation, those are two separate objectives that might call um, for a combination. Okay, our third example, um, a woman who is very value-oriented and her values align with an ESG approach and she really wants that ESG approach to drive how she invests. Um, and um, she's she also has a longer time horizon. So equities make sense for her. Um, nevertheless, her preference is not to be moving lockstep with the market. She would want some sort of mitigation for loss in her portfolios. So again, as we look at her profile, um, an ESG emphasis, but an interest in mitigating loss, those are two objectives that don't fit cleanly in a single portfolio. So a combination might make sense for her as well. Um, and then our last two case studies are individuals who have income needs um, and but different kinds of income needs. And so we'd have to solve them differently. The first is an individual who really wants to ensure regular withdrawals. He's looking to his portfolio to support an income need that he might have, and he needs to be able to take his income in predictable fashion. Um, that emphasis on regular income in and of itself suggests to me that potentially this should be a combination. Um, because while there are certainly a lot of portfolios, portfolios that we offer even that can meet regular income needs, there's a certain level of unpredictability to how markets behave and how income levels might behave as a result. And so potentially uh, there's room to add another type of portfolio that can help support regular withdrawals from the portfolio. Another consideration for him is this intermediate time horizon. So let's call that five to seven years. Um, when we think about intermediate time horizons, we know that what we want to make sure we're doing is mitigating the potential for a loss right at the end of this time horizon. And so that would suggest to us diversification across a wider amount of asset classes. So again, someone who is beginning to call to mind um, the requirement for multiple portfolios. And then finally, our last example, um, a couple who are very goal-oriented. Um, so in this example, we have um, someone who potentially has maybe a two to three-year time horizon and is potentially saving for what we call out as a home renovation. So there's a dollar amount that they're saving for. They need a certain return to get to that dollar amount, and they know that they want those, that money in about two to three years. So immediately, I start thinking about outcome-oriented portfolios, which pair really well with financial planning and goal-oriented investing. Um, but the wrinkle here for this couple is that they want to have access to their money and they potentially want to have ad hoc withdrawals from their portfolio. Given that, given that there are those dueling objectives for their portfolio, it might make sense to make a combination there. Okay, so let's take a look at the next slide. I know we're walking through five examples um, and our enthusiasm to cover uh, all the different scenarios you might have. Just bear with me as I walk through these different portfolios that we would create for these, for these different case studies. Um, so if you recall, our first example was someone who wanted um, equity SMAs, wanted to own his own stocks, 
but needed diversification across equities um, and didn't have the capital to own multiple equity SMAs, which tend to have higher investment minimums. Um, so the solution that comes to mind is um, two portfolios. One, a single equity SMA that would allow for stock ownership and kind of satiate that need that he has to own his own companies and own a piece of the companies himself. And then pairing that with a growth-oriented, in other words, equity-oriented multi-asset portfolio that spreads its assets across market caps and across geographies to create kind of a more well-rounded portfolio. And the value of using a multi-asset portfolio, of course, is that the investment minimum is lower. So he can put his capital to work in the equity SMA and then round it out with a multi-asset portfolio. So that would be a one-two combination that might make sense for someone in, in, in a similar situation. Okay, what about our individual who wants to preserve capital at a low cost? Um, so has that very high sensitivity to um, paying too much for investments. I think that calls to mind probably many people um, for all of you. The obvious solution there is an ETF multi-asset portfolio, which has you know, rock bottom expenses and is fairly broad um, based across the market. Um, but the downside of that kind of portfolio is that it's tracking closely overall markets. So if the stock market sells off, if the bond market is under pressure for reasons or concerns about inflation or interest rates, that portfolio doesn't really have any natural protection against that kind of those kind of market pressures. Um, so one possibility is to add alternatives to the portfolios. Alternatives you know, can range in terms of their style and what they're aiming to do. So what we would think about in this scenario is alternatives that are especially aimed at diversification and risk mitigation. Now, the reason why we, we say adding alternatives to the portfolio is that alternatives are hard to come by within the passive universe. There's just not a lot of solutions um, that effectively apply to, you know, to the alternatives market um, without um, having a ton of volatility or, or downsides to them. And so this would be adding an active solution to the ETF portfolio. So that could be a potential solution for someone with that profile. Our third profile was this ESG preference and a loss aversion. Um, and in this instance, it's similar to or reminiscent of our first um, scenario where we think a ESG SMA might make sense for the purposes of the individual's kind of value-based preferences. But given her loss aversion, adding a fixed income SMA to help mitigate the losses um, could be a nice complement and help ensure that all of her preferences are met in a single solution. So our last two cases are income-oriented strategies. If you recall, our first um, example was an individual who needed regular income needs, was very uncompromising about the idea of regularly taking income out of his portfolio, um, had a you know, five to seven year time horizon. So some diversification across asset classes made sense. Um, and the, the combination that we came up with in this scenario was actually three portfolios in one. The first being a dividend-oriented SMA, which makes intuitive sense given his emphasis on income and the need for some measure of equity so that he can grow his portfolio over that five to seven-year time horizon. The second combination or second addition to the portfolio um, is a multi-asset income portfolio. So a multi-asset income portfolio, yes, owns some equities, but also turns to some of the more income-producing asset classes like high yield and floating rate notes and preferred stock and areas like that that you can't necessarily find within a dividend-only 
um, oriented portfolio. And it's also providing um, some downside protection given the five to seven year time horizon. We don't wanna be taking on only equity risk in that scenario. Um, and then the last addition, and this really is a reaction to those regular income needs and that uncompromising interest in being able to pull income out of the portfolio at a regular cadence is adding a cash plus portfolio um, to the mix. So this would ensure that even regardless of the market environment, and even if income levels kind of um, crater, you know, depending on and how things are going, he is still able to pull money out predictably because he has that stable cash cash allocation there. Okay, our last example, which is a goal-oriented investor who has a two to three time, year time horizon, wants to save and generate a little bit of returns, meet that two to three year time horizon, but also wants to make sure as a couple, they can pull out um, cash as needed on an ad hoc basis. In this instance, as soon as I start hearing about goal-based investing and people who have a particular return and a particular time horizon in mind, immediately outcome-oriented types of strategies come to mind because they tend to take into account time horizon and a certain return preference or, or objective for the strategy. Um, but given the need for ad hoc cash withdrawals, I think a cash plus portfolio may make sense in that instance as well, because it helps make sure that you're not disrupting the investments um, when you're pulling that cash out of the portfolio. So that's just a, a general sampling of how we would create portfolios to meet these different objectives. And then just a quick reminder, um, once the portfolios are created, having a view as to what's different about this portfolio and um, how, how is the asset allocation different in this combination? What do the costs look like? Are they in step with what the objective of the strategy was? And, and the, the risk and return profile, is the, is the return enhanced or the risk lower? Um, and is that in keeping with what the original objective of the strategy was? And that's really a, a summary of our one, two, three step approach to combining strategies using UMAs or our multi-strategy tool. That's very informative, Marta, about combining portfolios. Uh, what about the other side? Are, are there some pairings that should be avoided because they might not work well together when using a UMA? Sure. Um, well, I guess the easiest way to answer that question is, is just to flip the script. So we talk about how um, you know, our formula to success when combining portfolios is having an objective, which may be kind of identifying um, subset objectives for a client and rolling that up into an overall objective, um, creating distinct roles in the portfolio. So using each portfolio to play a distinct role and then creating differentiated results. So um, I would argue that you know you're kind of moving in the wrong direction if you don't really have an objective when you start tinkering with a UMA, you're just kind of throwing things together, kind of experimenting. If um, you're using portfolios that are layering on each other. So I think um, the easiest example that comes to mind is potentially combining, say, a growth multi-asset portfolio with an income and growth multi-asset portfolio. What you are creating is a moderate growth portfolio. So you're creating something that already exists, and you're probably doing it in a little bit more convoluted um, manner than is probably necessary. So making sure, again, that each portfolio is playing a distinct role. And then finally, that last check, if you've created something that is no different than what's already out there. Um, maybe it's more trouble than it's worth. So the asset allocation didn't change as you would have expected. The costs remained relatively the same. Um, there was no change in the risk uh, profile or the return profile. In that instance, I think that's a combination that maybe is just 
unnecessary and, and maybe it's best to, to play it simple there. Thanks, Marta. Looks like we've got another question here. It says, uh, beyond the MSA tool, what additional tech gains has MIM implemented? Yeah, so I think that's a great question because when I think about um, Morningstar Investment Management and where we've been thinking about how we can help advisors the most, um, a big part of that has been focused on adding this, this technology and these efficiencies, especially to our team. Um, so there's been enormous amounts of work across our operations groups and across our tech groups and across our product groups to ensure that we're adding the right technology that really helps, to your point, Brett, um, leverage the right tools to make this kind of personalization and efficiency all that much easier to come by. And so some of those tools that, that come to mind for me, and I'm, you know, there's a lot more out there. I focus on the investment side, so this is a world I don't know perfectly well. But what, what stands out to me are things like DocuSign, which is quickly becoming industry standard and is something that we offer document submission, making, you know, the submitting the documents to custodians that much cleaner and easier to track, um, web to case types of, of, um, of technology. I mean, this is really part and parcel of everything that we want to do. And as an investor, my focus is generating the right outcomes. But as a business, our focus is generating the right investment outcomes and making it as easy as possible to work with us. And so that's been a huge emphasis of our business. And I would just give a little plug um, because there's so much going on behind the scenes in terms of what we're trying to add to our team that a good way to get familiar with them and just make sure that you're aware of all the different tools that are out there for you is to go to the website and on the upper right-hand side of the website, um, there's like a help button. And if you press that, it'll pull up two options. One is customer support um, and the other is what's new. And when you click on what's new, that's going to highlight anything new that's coming to our platform um, that's going to be particularly good for you to use or, or might make your life easier. So um, as you think about technology and, and making sure that you're leveraging the most out of everything that we're offering, I would suggest that you check in there on a pretty regular basis. That's great. My thanks again to Marta Norton, CIO for the Americas at Morningstar Investment Management. To learn more about Morningstar Managed Portfolios, go to mp.morningstar.com. That's mp for managed portfolios.morningstar.com. I'm Drew Carter. Thanks for listening to Simple But Not Easy. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.